Good morning. We're going to read from God's Word now. If you'd like a church Bible, just pop your hand in the air. There are people ready to bring you one. Post haste. We're on page 1025 or whatever app you use or whatever hard copy you use. Can't tell you the page of your own Bible, sorry. (laughs) But we're reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 to 15. Continuing on in our series, Our Treasure in Jars of Clay. So read along with me. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Hey guys, good to see you again. My name is Matt, I'm one of the ministers here. Open your Bibles back up, especially if you closed them. We are going to be Uh, going through that passage, and I'm going to help us to unpack that and see what God has to say. Uh, But why don't we ask God for his help as we do that. So pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Be with us as we do so. Open our minds and soften our hearts. Uh, Change us to be more like Christ. Amen. Now, I find as I get older, I actually get more interested in, uh, in history. I had a little giggle when Mark asked if anyone's interested in history, because <laughs> at school, no one is. Uh, but as I get older, I get more and more interested in history. 
And the thing that interests me is that people keep making the same mistakes over and over again. You can see a pattern as you look through history uh, and the mistakes. So if you do that course, you'll probably see mistakes that have been made over and over again. Uh, and it makes me think to myself, in two, three hundred years when there are teenagers sitting in a class reading about us, uh, are they going to be laughing to themselves at the, the things that we did, the mistakes that we kept making? And I think they'll laugh at us, mostly because when I do a youth talk and I say, remember Sydney Olympics? They look at me like they have uh, no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but history, it's, it's filled with these amazing moments, these moments that uh, really uh, amuse me. Uh, we get caught up with dates and names sometimes that we miss them, but when I spot them, uh, I am highly amused. One of these things, one of these times, is Spain in the 15th century. They were doing quite well for themselves. They had conquered what was then known, the known world. They controlled both sides of the Mediterranean. Uh, and so what Spain did, a little fool of itself, is it stamped its coins. Uh, first, it had two pillars, which represented the gates of the world, which they now controlled. And in between these um, pylons uh, was a scroll. And written on the scroll in Latin were these words, Ni plus ultra, no more beyond. Although then in 1492, Columbus, he went to sea just to see what he could see, and all he could see was the new world, America, or the Americas which meant the proud nation of Spain, they had to stand up, they had to admit their shortcomings, they admitted their lack of knowledge, uh, and they had to admit that there was more beyond, there was uh, more still to come. In fact, what they did was they struck the knee from their coins, and so they just read plus ultra, more beyond. The change, the ch the change actually from uh, no more beyond to more beyond, uh, it affected world culture and global uh, economy. You know, how Spain perceived their situation was actually very different to what it actually was. They thought uh, they had everything, when in actual fact there was still more to come. This picture of Spain, it's a great picture of the spiritual reality of the world around us. And as you speak to a lot of Christians, they have the same spiritual perspective. Knee plus ultra, no more beyond. They think this life is all there is. Today, as we look at the start of 2 Corinthians 5, we'll see that, in fact, there is more beyond. After this life, there is more life. And we will see that uh, living in the knowledge of our future life, our future dwelling, as Paul puts it, uh, we are compelled uh, by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ to persuade people of that future life to come, the life they get through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Last week, we looked at chapter 4, as Dan pointed out for us. Uh, Paul makes this mind-blowing statement in verse 7. Have a look at it. He says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars. The treasure that Paul's speaking about is Jesus Christ. And in particular, it's the forgiveness we have in His death and resurrection. As we put our trust in Him, even though we're weak, and broken and sinful, we have this treasure, this treasure of everlasting, never-ending life with God. And in chapter 5, he continues to expand on this idea. And as you can see there in 5, chapter 1, he changes his metaphor from clay jars to tents. 
the earthly body, the body that we are in right now, Paul says, is a tent. And over the, the past few weeks, probably watching the news, you just look outside, we now have a lake where we didn't have one a fortnight ago. Uh, you know, water has been rising. Could you imagine living in Penrith? Imagine living in it now, as the water comes up. Living in your tent next to the banks of the Nepean River. The tent's gone. Destroyed. As the water drops, it won't be anywhere to be seen. Even the most expensive tent is temporary. This mortal, earthly bodies are just like that. They're temporary. They seem to get worse and worse each day, each year. Now, I mostly, I always like to say that Molly is the pushover parent, and I'm the tough one. A good example of this is every morning, the girls will wake up, we're in a two-story house, and I'll stand at the top of the stairs, and I'll, Daddy, carry me. And in my the, you know, kindest way I can, very stern, but so they know who's boss, I say, coming. <laughs> one morning, uh, Molly comes out of our bedroom, around to the stairs, and finds me standing there. I've got Wendy in one arm, and Lola in the other. She goes, what are you doing? I said, I don't know if I'll make it down. I think my knees will give way. The girls refuse to walk. She says, this was before, she was pregnant with Olive. She said, how are you going to go with three? And then heads down the stairs. <laughs> and I'm only 23. Like, <laughs> our bodies are temporary, right? We're going to lose them. They're going to get destroyed. Paul here tells us that we have a dwelling made by God, one that will last forever. It's eternal. That should bring us great joy. A dwelling, a body that isn't temporary, isn't like this one, but it's one that will last forever. And it's a body that's been completely built by God. Nothing we do or say will impact it. It doesn't matter if we eat the right amount of the right food at the right time. You know, Pilates and yoga and CrossFit have no impact on this eternal body. When we die, it is God who remakes our bodies. He makes us so that we'll never fall apart, never get old. They're permanent and perfect and made purely by God. Now, twice in my life, I've done the 40-hour famine, um, which will probably surprise Peter because he sets his watch on uh, how often I eat. But I've done it twice, and the second time I did it, uh, I did it over the weekend and I finished lunchtime Monday. Uh, and I, I worked, and the people I worked with, they all knew that I was doing it. All I talked about was going to the buffet and eating 80 hours worth of food in 40 minutes. And then lunchtime finally came. We were walking. I was walking into where the buffet was, and I got a call over the radio. Oh, it was the boss. Matt, uh, can you come down and meet, meet us in the work shed? So, okay, I went down to the work shed. Everyone else went to lunch. I get there. Boss isn't there. I get another call over the thing. And he laughing in the background. Um, Matt, you better get to lunch because it's going to end soon. I ran so fast to that lunchroom, my stomach was groaning. I was so hungry. And as we think about our bodies waiting for us, the bodies that God made eternal and perfect, we groan in the same way, longing for them, thinking about them, looking forward to the day that we're finally in them. But while we wait, we hang out in these tents, knowing that our eternal dwelling is a short, sure thing. You read that in verse 5. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. 
God the Spirit enters our hearts and works in us to help us to continue to trust in the work of Jesus. And it changes us from the inside out. It changes us to be more like Christ. The, the work of the Spirit, it's not a mysterious one. It's actually quite easy to see. If you've ever known someone that went from not being a Christian to being a Christian, their, their life is very different. They've changed dramatically. And even if you watch someone grow in their faith and the Spirit works in them, you see them change into being more like Christ. They're starting to grow into their eternal body, but it's just a down payment. It's a small part of what will come. It's important and it's amazing, but it's just a small deposit of what's to come. Now, I want you to think back to a time you were at a park. It can actually be anywhere with a legend, a kid. Um, and the kid usually yells out, Mum, Dad, catch me. And they jump. They just run and launch themselves off the edge. As a parent, uh, I've been caught out by this a few times. A kid in the air yelling, catch me. I've so quickly reached out and caught them, caught my daughters before they hit the ground. What's going through that kid's head? So they look at their parent, sorry, there's mum. She's drinking a coffee, she's about two meters away, talking to Lucas's mum, half turned the other way, not really concentrating, I'm not sure she's ready. No. Wendy especially, she'll jump and then call, Mum, catch me. Because <laughs> she doesn't take into consideration all the different aspects of the situation and then make her decision. Because she doesn't need to. She has complete faith, complete trust that Molly will catch her. And every time, Molly has caught her. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Molly has caught her every single time. And this is the thing that Paul is talking about in verse 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. Although I find sight an unhelpful word. I think appearance is a better word, although it's not, it's not good English. We walk by faith and not by appearance. Paul uh, and those with him, in fact, all Christians... We don't live because of how the things around us appear to be. That's not how we live. And we don't need to. Just like Wendy knows Molly will catch her every time, we know that God does exactly what He says. He fulfills all His promises. The Bible tells us that. That's why Paul says with such great confidence that if we're still in this earthly tent, we're not yet with God. There is still more beyond. And the opposite, in fact, what he says is uh, the preference is that if we are with God, means that we're no longer in these tents of a body. But whichever way it is, Paul says we aim to please God. We do what is pleasing to God. Now, when you think for a second, because this could happen over morning tea, a preschooler comes out and says, I don't know you, but tell me, please, what does it mean to please God? How would you answer them? Thank you. <laughs> to please God, as we just heard, means to glorify Him. Now, I don't know, it's a bit of a, a cop-out answer. Pleasing God is glorifying Him, but stick with me. God's glory is exactly who He is. To know God personally and intimately is to know His justice and mercy, His love, His anger, His holiness and righteousness. To glorify God is to know God. And to bring God glory is to show the world who God truly is. And so the answer to the original question, 
What does it mean to please God? To please God means knowing Him and making Him known. And we'll be judged on that work. Do you know God and make Him known? Do you know Jesus Christ? And do you help others to know Him? Because there is a future. There is more beyond this mortal body. A dwelling place, a body made not by us, but by God. And while we wait, and when we get there, we do what's pleasing to God. We glorify Him. And the day of judgment that Paul touches on here in verse 10, we don't want to be seen as doing evil. And we don't want those who we know and love to be seen to be doing evil either. That is why we persuade everyone who will listen about the hope that they can find in Jesus on the cross. Look down at your Bibles, verse 11. Tell me, what is the motive behind Paul wanting to persuade people to Jesus? It's fear of the Lord. Now when we read fear of the Lord, we Christians, we like to say what it means is it's, we're amazed by Him. We're in awe of His power. We respect Him. And sure, if you take a second and think about it, the God who created everything you see and everything you touch is awe-inspiring. It's quite amazing. But fear, especially in this context, needs to be taken for what it is. Paul says, it's because we know what it means to be terrified of God that we do whatever we can to convince those who we love to turn and trust in Jesus. Paul knows, all Christians in fact should know, that for those who do not trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is a lake of burning sulfur extended under you. There is a dreadful pit of flames of God's wrath. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and the only thing between you and hell is air. It is only the power and the mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You're probably not aware of the situation. At this moment, you find yourself kept out of hell, but you don't see the hand of God that holds you out. Or you think about the things that you try to do to preserve yourself, your career that you've made, the house that you've built, the education you have, the savings, your possessions. The truth is, they mean nothing. If God... If he takes his hand away, you have the same chance of those things holding you up as the air around us. Your denial of God and refusal to turn to him makes you like a lead weight plummeting into hell. God holds you in his hands and God is angry. He holds you like you would hold an insect with disgust and everything you do is against him, provoking his anger more and more. You've offended him, and yet it is nothing but the hand of God that holds you from falling into the fire. There is no reason why you don't drop into hell this very second. You need to be afraid of the danger you're in. It's divine and it's just punishment for turning away from the creator of the world. And you can do nothing to save yourself, nothing of your own. There is nothing you have, nothing you can do, Nothing you will ever do to convince God to spare your life. You, at this very moment, are sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is a terrifying picture. 
for those who are without Christ. And it's a reality for you. It's not fun or uplifting. It's not very joyful to be preaching this message, but it's one that needs to be given. Because we want people to know what is really going on when someone comes to them, when someone says, look at my life, look how good it is, and all you need to do is exactly what I did, and you'll be living the dream. Because it's just not true. We don't go to our friends and family, the non-Christians who we meet, and tell them what they want to hear. We tell them what they need to hear. And we pray to God that they will accept what they see on the cross. They accept for what it is. Not a failure like the world says, but as a victory as God sees it. I stand here and I talk about the coming of hell for those who don't believe. And you talk about the, uh, the destruction of the people who turn away from God, who don't accept them. We're not speaking of earthly things. Things like our tent that will be destroyed. We are pleading to their heart, not satisfying desires or ambitions, not, not playing on their greed for the things that they want, but we're satisfying the heart, the heart that is screaming for help knowing that there is more beyond. But whatever people think, if they believe us, or if they think we're speaking nonsense, it doesn't matter. The whole reason we tell them this is so they can get eternal life, a dwelling with God. We don't change the message because the fear of God is the message. It's the first half of the message anyway. And while it's the fear of God that motivates uh, Paul to preach, it's the love that Christ has for his people that compels him to continue his work. And this seems a bit backwards, the way he points it out. The love of God at the end of verse 14 there. Have a look, the last few words. If one died for all, then all died. It doesn't seem like the death of Jesus is too effective. What, what Paul is saying is that Jesus, he went to the cross and he hung there on that tree. He took the punishment reserved for you, it was as if he jumped into the fire of pit, the fiery flames of hell, so that you don't have to. And he took with him all the wrongs, all the sins, all the rejection of God, everything bad you've ever done. Jesus died, and that dies with him. If you trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, believe that God will freely and graciously give you life because of what Jesus, out of the love for you did on the cross. All the sin has been put to death and only holiness and righteousness live in you. You are no longer a sinner in the hands of an angry God. You are now a saint in the presence of a proud father. I'm going to turn to, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 should all be there. I want you to have a read from verse 1 to verse 18 and I'm going to leave you with these two questions. I want you to ask yourself, do you know this man and does he affect your life? I'll give you a minute to read that and think about those questions. Do you know him and does he affect your life?